Acts 8, Part 2, from the sermon series, Acts of the Holy Spirit, spoken by Pastor Kevin Swanson. Well, good morning, all of you. Um, Before the worship team sneaks out the door there, I was just sitting back there looking at everything around this room that has to happen so we can be here to worship at 1130. There's people that come at 7 o'clock in the morning to set all of this up, and then they go home and make themselves beautiful and come back here at 1130 for the service. Could we just thank these people in the front and in the back that that are making this happen week after week after week? Yeah, when, when you're a homeless church, there's a lot of work that has to go into a Sunday service, and uh, we have a wonderful team that makes that happen uh, every week. Uh, we are, as Pastor Sunita said, continuing this journey through the book of Acts. Thank you for joining with us. For those of you that are reading the scriptures ahead of time as we send it out in the weekly email, uh, kudos to you. Uh, you probably get a lot more out of the message when you do that for the rest of us that maybe aren't doing that yet, let me encourage you to put that uh, into your uh, weekly practices. I'm going to pray for us, and then we will get into the Word of God. Uh, God, you have heard our worship this morning. You've heard our prayers. You know what is on the heart of each person who walked through the door today, and you know exactly what they need to take out with them. And so I ask that by your Holy Spirit, you will meet each one of us today because we've come here, God, expectantly. Uh, We commit this service to you. We ask that your will would be done, you would be glorified, and that your truth will be communicated clearly. In the name of Jesus, I pray, amen. Um, Our pastor, our senior pastor, Peter Ahn, is in Africa right now. He's in South Africa, took a small group down there to see the Zemele ministry. Uh, He'll be back, it's a very short trip. Uh, Keep him in your prayers. I know that he would appreciate that. If we were to take a poll here today, I am pretty sure that the vast majority of us would raise our hands if I asked the question, have you ever experienced something just really weird in church? Have you ever experienced something just really strange, something you look, you look back on it now and you say, where did that come from? Or how did that happen? Might have been here, might have been in another church, but I think if we started sharing, we could probably come up with quite a list, it might be humorous too, of things that have happened in church. Because church is just filled with people, right? And, And we're all a bit messed up, we're all still sinful people, and when we all get together, a lot of good things happen, but some really strange things happen as well. We've seen so far in the book of Acts, in the, in the couple dozen weeks that we've been in it already, that the church, this early church, this brand new church, the very first church, was no exception to weird happenings that went on, unpredictable things, things that came out of left field, and you just, like, where did that come from? Because Jesus was the one who said, I will build my church. And so right away we think, oh, great, Jesus is building it. It's all going to be smooth sailing. And in the the second chapter of Acts, in the launch service of the very first church ever, the people that were around observing what was happening in this church, they went away with the conclusion that all those people are drunk. Now, that's that's a pretty weird start for the church. Clearly, they were not drunk, but... That's not the reputation that this church wanted, but that's kind of how it started. And then in in chapter five, we find, Luke tells us in the book of Acts, that all of the leaders of the church, all of the apostles were arrested and put in jail. Great. What if that came out in the Thursday email, Metro? 
Oh, by the way, church is canceled next Sunday. The entire pastoral staff is in jail. It's like, what did I get into here? They had not committed any crime, but the Jewish religious leaders were very threatened by what they were doing. So they arrested the leaders and they threw them in jail. I think it was kind of a, a scare tactic. Near the end of that same chapter, the first death threats are recorded against the leaders of the church. We saw a couple of weeks ago at the end of uh, the sermon that this man Stephen preached in chapter 7. It was a It was a mega sermon, and at the very end, he gave the benediction, and the people that were there listening killed him. What does that do to aspiring preachers in this young church? Oh, that's what I want. I want to go do that. Last week, Pastor Peter told us that the majority of the members of the only church that existed, this was it, in Jerusalem, the majority of the members were all run out of town. I mean, not just for a day. No, they had to leave. They had to, they they became displaced persons, refugees, because they had to flee for their very lives. Obedient to Jesus, following his leading, and then this. I guess Jesus didn't say it would be easy, even though he promised that he would be the one building his church. As we continue today and we go into chapter 8 of Acts, we find another situation that is completely unpredictable. It was dangerous. It was toxic. Peter, one of the leaders of the church, had to address this situation because he knew if he didn't, it it, it threatened to split the, the very second church that was ever formed back in the day. And he chooses to do so with what I'm calling a micro sermon. Micro sermon. Four verses long. It would be nice if I could preach a four-verse-long sermon. (laughs) It probably took him 90 seconds to preach this this micro-sermon. And he directs it at one particular individual who has really gone off track and needs to be brought back on. But Peter is fully aware that in the crowd that was there, the gathered people were listening as well. So it's not just for this one person's benefit. No, it's for the gathered crowd. What Peter didn't know was that later on Luke was going to record all of this, that it was going to be available to us 2,000 years later, and we become members of that crowd. We're listening in on this micro-sermon that Peter has for this one man. And here's the news. This sermon applies to every single one of us in the room. No exceptions. I don't don't care where you are today. No exceptions. This sermon applies to every one of us. So here's where we're going to go. I'm going to read the passage for us. Starts in Acts chapter 8, verse verse 4. Then I'm going to set the context, and then we're going to focus in on this micro-sermon and ask the question, what does it say to us today as Peter is addressing this one individual? So if you've got your Bibles, you can turn to Acts chapter 8, verse 4. You'll notice I've backed up about four verses into Pastor Peter's text from last week, but that will give us some context, and we will then move forward through our passage. Acts 8, verse 4. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. 
So there was great joy in that city. Now, for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great. And all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself was believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them, they had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your hearts. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. After they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. Church, this is the word of God for us today. In this passage, right away we meet this man named Philip. This is not the first time we've met him. Because if you remember when the Jerusalem church was having a problem with the widows receiving their, their, their daily food allotments, seven men were put into uh, a role of, of looking after the widows, and, and this man, Philip, was one of them. He was one of the seven. I call Philip sort of an all-purpose guy in the church. He was a guy who was willing to say, yeah, okay, there's a neat, yeah, I'll do, I can do that. You know, or I don't know how to do that, but teach me, I'll do it. Because he was feeding widows back in Jerusalem. Then he was one of the ones that was run off out of Jerusalem. He crossed the border down into Samaria. And we find that he's now teaching, he's healing, he's liberating people from, from demonic captivity. And in essence, he's doing exactly what Jesus did when he was ministering on earth here. He's following the lead of Jesus. He's living in obedience to Jesus. If there was a need, Philip was on it. He'd gone into the country of Samaria, as I said, and the people were responsive to his message about Jesus Christ. People were believing in Jesus because of his message. So we have to say that a new church plant started. This little body of believers in Samaria became the second church, and Philip was the church planter. And then Luke tells us here in Acts that there was this man in Samaria named Simon, called Simon the sorcerer. 
Now, Luke doesn't give us a lot of detail. He doesn't say what that meant. What, what, what did it mean that this guy was a sorcerer? But we can sort of put some pieces together and, and, and conclude that, that he was doing things in front of the people that a normal human couldn't normally do. So it was catching people's attention. And no doubt there was a spiritual component to what he was doing. And I don't mean the Holy Spirit when I say a spiritual component. I mean probably some evil spiritual powers that he was invoking here to do the things that he was doing. What we do know about Simon, as we read Luke's account, is that Simon was doing absolutely nothing to help anybody. On this one hand, we have Philip. He's teaching the people so they can come to faith in Christ. He's healing people that are sick. He's casting demons out of people. Everything he does is for the favor of the people. Everything that Simon does, on the other hand, is for himself so that he can gain a following, so that he can continue amazing people. And if people didn't know how great he was, no problem, Simon would tell them. He boasted of his own greatness. He told people what a great guy he was. And ultimately, the people that followed him around came to this conclusion that this man is rightly called the great power of God. They were wrong, but they could see in him powers beyond what a human should be able to invoke. Luke tells us in verse 13 that Simon also believed when others believed the message that Philip preached to them of Jesus Christ. What Luke doesn't tell us is what kind of a belief this was. Was it a, a genuine belief? Was it a faith in Christ as his savior? Or was it some kind of a counterfeit belief that just kind of allowed him to get in with another group of people? We don't know. And that's going to be important as we go through this passage. But I have to tell you that in a group like us today, where many of us will say we believe, that belief could vary quite a bit. Because some people believe this is just the right place to be on Sunday because this is what I've always done. And others believe that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, as our savior. And we need to respond to that gift that he offers to us. It's a very big difference between those two kinds of belief. What we also know about Simon is he had a huge man crush on Philip. Because from this point on, the more Simon watched Philip, the more he followed him around with envy. Because he could see Philip doing things far beyond what he could do. So Simon wanted to learn how to do those things so his own popularity could grow. Word gets back to Jerusalem, the, the home church, the first church, uh, to Peter and John, the main leaders there, that Samaria has accepted the gospel. There's a new church down in Samaria. So they go down to Samaria to check things out for themselves. And Luke tells us that when they got down there, they were pleased to find, indeed, there were new Christians down there. This is very exciting. Church number two is now planted. And they noticed or figured out that these people hadn't received the Holy Spirit, Luke tells us. And so he tells us that Peter and John laid their hands on these new believers, these new Christians, and they prayed for them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, little parentheses here. People have looked at that verse right there and said, ah, that's how we get the Holy Spirit. We got to get somebody to lay hands on us, get a pastor to lay hands on us, get somebody, you know, older in the faith, lay hands on us and pray for us. That's how we get the Holy Spirit. Not so. That's what happened in this particular instance. 
We've already seen in the book of Acts so far that people got the Holy Spirit without anybody laying hands on them. God is not restricted. The offer that the Bible makes to us is to to ask God, and he will graciously give us the Holy Spirit. In this case, they laid hands on them, and this man, Simon, was even more amazed when he saw that. To the point where he took at least Peter, maybe other of the apostles aside, got out his wallet and started pulling out bills and said, hey, how much? Name the price so that I can do what you just did. I want to be able to lay my hands on people so they can receive the Holy Spirit. What Simon was asking for was he wanted to buy the authority of an apostle. These were the, the original 12 apostles minus Judas. There's 11 of them now. This was something the apostles were doing. They'd been with Jesus for three years. They had a relationship with him. Jesus gave them this, this authority and gave them this instruction. And now this guy wants to pull his wallet out and buy the same power that they have got. If you were here last week at Metro, uh, Pastor Peter preached a sermon about suffering. It was a great message, wasn't super easy, um, but it was re- a really good message. Now just imagine if somebody was visiting here at Metro last Sunday and went out and saw Pastor Peter at the newcomer's quick stop and pulled their wallet out and said, oh, Pastor Peter, you're such a great preacher. And people responded to what you said and I, I was amazed by that and how much will it cost for me to preach next Sunday? I, I wanna do the same thing that you did. Name the price, Pastor Peter. No, no, money's no object. You know, it's like, this is laughable. What, what are you thinking? That is not the way that this works. But we have to be careful. We have to be careful because I think all of us are susceptible to falling into this bargaining with God mode. We're all susceptible of saying, God, if you will just do this for me, then I'll do this. God, if you will answer this prayer, I'll never do this thing again. And we try to make a deal with God. It's not how God operates. And, and, and Peter was well aware of that here, that nobody was going to buy their way into apostleship. And that background leads us right up to this micro-sermon now. The stage is set. Peter and Simon are there nose to nose. A crowd has gathered around them. Simon has just offered money so that he can have the authority of, a, of an apostle. And Peter knows that he has got to address this. So this micro sermon, like any good sermon, has an introduction. It has three points and it has a conclusion. Any aspiring preachers here today, don't use this introduction as a pattern. I promise you, it's not a good way to start most sermons. Because Peter knew that he had a crisis on his hands, and he knew he needed to address it quickly and quite abruptly. Acts 8, verse 20. Peter answered, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. Now, what is he actually saying to this guy? Simply this. Peter looks Simon in the eye and he says, Simon, you and your money can go to hell. That was the message. Hard message. Did it get his attention? Did it get the attention of the people around him? We can believe that it did. It was probably silence at that point. And now, Peter can get into this message. This may sound like angry Peter at this point, but it's not. This is Peter speaking the truth in love. 
Peter cared about this guy. He didn't want to just get rid of him. He wanted to get him back on the right path. And he cared enough about him to give him the hard truth to get his attention so now he can move into his sermon. I, I want to frame his little micro sermon as uh, what, what I like to call kind of a spiritual checkup. Peter has, has uh, seen and heard some things about Simon, and now he's ready to address him. And, and I feel like he's addressing him sort of like a doctor addressing a patient who's come into the examining room there. And uh, I think we can all kind of put ourselves in that place here as we listen to what Peter has to say. Spiritual checkup. Point number one, the diagnosis. The diagnosis. This is where any good doctor starts once he gets the facts out in front of him. Verse 21. Last part of verse 21. Your heart is not right before God. Pretty simple. Pretty easy. You can remember that. Your heart is not right before God. Now, how did Peter know this? How could he determine this about this man, Simon? How do we know if our own hearts are right or not before God? Well, I would suggest that the way Peter figured this out was through words and actions. He'd been watching Simon. He'd been listening to Simon. He'd heard about Simon before he even came. He knew this man's history. He knew he professed to be a Christian at one point. He had just received the offer of money from this guy to buy his way into apostleship. And then in verse 23, Peter kind of summarizes his observation when he says to Simon, I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Peter knew. Peter knew the heart condition of this man. Now, we know because Luke said so that at some point this man Simon had believed when he was presented with the gospel. But we don't know what he believed in. Was he really saved? Was he a Christian? We don't know. But it really doesn't matter at this point because Peter's diagnosis is the same whether this man identifies as a Christian or not. If he is a Christian, he's a very young, very immature, and very confused Christian, and he needs to be straightened out. If he's not a Christian, he needs God to do a work in his heart to bring him into a relationship with him. So either way, Simon's diagnosis is correct. No matter what, I'm sorry, Peter's diagnosis is correct, no matter what Simon's situation actually was. So let's ask ourselves a question today, church. What is our diagnosis today? I, I mean, seriously, what, what if Peter was here and interacting with you on an individual basis and hearing your words and watching your actions? What would his diagnosis of us be today? This is a really important question to ask ourselves, even if we don't like the answer, even if it's a little bit scary. What is our heart condition before God? What is the diagnosis? In the Old Testament, this guy named David was the greatest king that Israel ever had. God had appointed him as king, put him on the throne. He was a man after God's own heart. He wrote many of the Psalms. And in one of those Psalms, he writes a prayer. Psalm 139. And David says this to God. He says, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me. And see, test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. 
So here's this great man, King David, really close with God. He's not sure what his own heart condition is. So he comes before God in prayer, and he invites God to reveal to him, how's my heart? What's going on here? God, show me. I want to know, where are my blind spots? What am I missing? Lead me. Show me. God welcomes that prayer from any of us. We don't have to be King David to pray that prayer. Another tactic we can take is ask somebody who we are close to, somebody who knows us well, somebody we trust. Ask them the question, what do you see in my words and actions that reveals my heart condition? What would be your diagnosis of me today? It's every bit as important for us as it was for Simon that day. So Peter gives his diagnosis. Now, a good doctor won't leave a patient with just a diagnosis, and Peter doesn't do that. He, second point is the prescription. He has a prescription for Simon. Verse 22, repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord. Repent and pray. Simple prescription. He didn't even need to write it down. He could remember, repent and pray. Now, church, repentance is a change of believing that is demonstrated by a change in actions. Repentance is a change of believing demonstrated by a change of actions. Simon was following Simon's way. Simon had it all figured out, how he wanted his life to be and and how he wanted to be famous and known and, and, and people thinking amazing things about him, but it was completely contrary to God's way. Simon had to believe something different. Peter is trying to demonstrate something different to him so that Simon would repent, so that he would turn away from the wrong way he had chosen and follow the right way that God had put before him. Repent of this wickedness. Instead, Simon had chosen a shortcut. He thought it would work. He could spend money to buy authority that could only ever really be gained by the hard work of submitting to God and and, and building a relationship with God. The word repentance is easy to say, it's short, but it's very, very hard to implement. True repentance is difficult for anybody because who likes to admit that what they're doing is wrong? And needs to change. Who likes to admit that they're sinful and they need somebody to rescue them? Who likes to admit that what they have chosen isn't working? None of us do. None of us like that. Repentance is very, very difficult. Years ago, when, when Linda and I were doing missionary work down in Venezuela, part of my job was to keep um, Bible translators and church planters and doctors and, and educators supplied out in very remote places so they could actually live where they lived and do the work that they did. So I was moving around a lot. I was bringing supplies. I'd bring people in and out in my airplane, and, and, and I was meeting people all the time. And I met a young couple down there, and they were act, almost exactly the same age as Linda and me. Uh, we were in our mid-20s. We were young and idealistic. And, and, and Meryl and Teresa had gone out to live among an indigenous monolingual tribe with the goal of translating the New Testament into the language of those people. 
And they first had to put their language in writing because they had no written language. And so this was like a minimum of a 30-year commitment that they had made. So I would fly out to where they were and I'd bring them food or medicine and take their kids in and out to school or whatever. So I was, I was out there a lot. And so one day I was asking Merrill, Merrill, you guys been here a couple years, you know, how's the translation going? He said, well, it's really going pretty good, Kevin. We're working through the Gospels right now. We're starting with the Gospels, and we're working through them. I said, man, that's a lot of work for you and Teresa, isn't it? He says, it is, but we're not doing it all on our own because we have, we have identified two or three really sharp young members of this indigenous tribe, and, and we've recruited them as translation helpers. And what they did is they helped the finished product be something that flowed in that indigenous language. It wasn't just a choppy word-by-word translation. It was more thought-by-thought. So as they read it, it made sense to them. And these people would say, yeah, that's how we would say it. That's how we would speak it in our language. I said, let me get this straight, Merrill. You've got these, these young people from this village that are spending hours every day with you in the Gospels translating the gospels, hearing the story of Jesus Christ, his birth, his life, his miracles, his death, his resurrection, and then doing it all over again in the next gospel. He said, yeah, that's right. That's what we're doing. And I'm thinking, this is awesome. I said, so Merrill, how many of them have become Christians already? He said, zero. I said, what? Yeah, none of them. I said, wait a minute, how can that possibly be? They have more exposure to the Bible than people in our own country. He was a Canadian, we're Americans, we know where the the church and dozens of different Bible translations, all available to us. How is it that these people can be this intense into the word of God and not respond to it? He said, Kevin, it's simply because repentance is so difficult. I said, what do you mean? He said, for them to respond to the word of God, for them to receive the gift that God is offering to them means they have to call all of their ancestors liars. They have to call their own parents liars. And they have to say that the life that I've lived from birth until now, I've been going the wrong direction. And he said, right now, it's a bridge too far for them. They, they, they can't do it. And it was sobering for me to hear that because they had the truth and they knew the truth and they were understanding the truth, but they wouldn't receive the truth because repentance is so, so hard. Now, the rest of that story is actually good news. In time, they came to faith in Christ. In time, they realized that that this was truth they needed. This was life and this was death that they'd been living before. And and right now, today, I can tell you that New Testament translation has been completed. I have a copy of it at home. And just like about a year and a half ago, they finished it. And the church that is established in that village now has matured to the point where they are sending people out to bring the gospel into other villages who speak their own language. So ultimately, the repentance came. But it was very, very difficult. It's difficult for any of us. But that was only half the prescription. Peter says to Simon, you need to repent and you need to pray to the Lord. And if repentance is a change of actions, a change of behavior, then prayer is a change of words. Here's what I mean. So far we have seen Simon boasting and bragging, letting everybody know how great he is and bargaining with the apostles to try to buy the authority that they have. Those are the words 
we've seen from Simon so far. And those words need to change to words of confession to God. He needs to own his stuff. He needs to confess his sins. He needs to ask God for forgiveness. Those are the words that Simon needs to adopt as opposed to the words that Peter has heard so far from this guy. But church isn't one of the most humbling things that we ever have to do is to admit that we're wrong, admit that we need help, admit that our plan isn't working, admit that God is really the only one who can provide what we need, no matter how hard we work and how hard we try, that it just doesn't work on our own. Nobody likes to confess that they were wrong. But this is half of the prescription that Peter gives to Simon that day. Church, where is God showing you that you need to repent? Where is God showing you that you need to pray to God? You need to change your prayer habits. What, what actions and words are in your life that don't belong there, that are demonstrating that your heart really is not right before God? We need to pay attention to what Peter is putting before Simon at this point as he gives the prescription. And then finally, the third point is the cure. You know, any good doctor, if he expects us to believe the, the, uh, the diagnosis and follow the prescription, the, the doctor's gotta hang something out in front of us as a carrot, right? You know, if the doctor says, yeah, you've got this infection, but here's an antibiotic, and if you take it for two weeks, don't skip any pills, you can expect to be back to good health. Oh, thank you. That's the goal. That's what I'm working towards. Great, let's agree on that together. And, and Peter did the same thing for Simon. Back to verse 22. Peter says, repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you. Forgive you. Forgive you. Simon, end game. Forgiveness. God is offering you forgiveness, Simon. This is what is out ahead of you. If you are willing to believe the diagnosis and follow the prescription, forgiveness is available for you. That is the goal. Now, um, can you put that verse back up there again, please, just for a moment? You may notice that Peter says something a little over the top here because he says, you know, repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you. Now, if you look at that verse and study it for a moment and think about what we know of the rest of the scripture, it's like, wait a minute, Peter. Of course God's gonna forgive this guy, right? He is. God offers forgiveness for anybody. It doesn't matter how great their sin is. And Peter is using a little bit of hyperbole here. He's overstating the situation because he really, really wants to get Simon's attention. And so, you know, don't get thrown off by that. Don't let that mess with your theology. No, forgiveness is available to all. But Peter knows how serious the situation is. And if he loses Simon at this point, he may lose him completely. So he really wants him to get this. He wants him to ask for and receive God's forgiveness. It's available to him. Sounds very simple, but it can be very very difficult because there are big barriers to receiving God's forgiveness. God doesn't put the barriers up. We do. 
And I'm sure Simon did as well. One of the barriers that we put up is this barrier that says, you know, when I look in the mirror, I'm not such a bad guy. You know, I do, I do a few bad things, but I do more good things than I do bad things. And probably, I'm pretty sure that at the end of the day, God's going to give me a pass because there's more good than bad in my life. And so we don't believe we need forgiveness. On the other end of the spectrum, we have people that say, oh my goodness, you have no idea what I've done. You have no idea what my past looks like. You have no idea the choices that I have made. You have no idea the things that I have done over and over and over again. My sins are too big and my sins are too many. There's no way God could forgive my sins. So either way, we end up in a situation where a barrier has come between us and the forgiveness that God is offering to us. We don't need it or we don't believe that God is powerful enough to forgive our sins. A guy by the name of John, who wrote some letters to the early churches, which we have in the New Testament, he addresses this in 1 John 1, 8 and 9. He simply says this, if we claim to be without sin, as this guy over here, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But then to this guy over here who says, oh, no, no, am I too many, too much, too big, no way God could forgive it. In verse 9, he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Do you see what God is doing here? He's not quantifying sin in any way, shape, or form. He's not saying some sins are worse than others or this much is okay, but this is too much. No, he's saying if we confess our sins, I will forgive those sins. God will forgive those sins. So in this verse, both of the barriers are removed to forgiveness. It is indeed available to all. It's available to Simon, and it's available to every one of us. Three points in the sermon. A diagnosis, a prescription, and a cure. The conclusion then wraps this whole thing up. And I just have to warn you, it doesn't end well for this guy, Simon. It does not end well. Verse 24, then Simon answered, he's responding to Peter, Simon answered, pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said will happen to me. Now on the surface, we look at that verse and it's like, okay, you know, he's, he's getting on board here. He's, he's you know, that sounds all right, but wait a minute. Look carefully at what Simon is doing in this response. What has Peter just said to him? Peter has said, Simon, you got to own this. You have to repent. Nobody else can repent for you. You've got to pray to the Lord for forgiveness. Nobody else can do that for you. And Simon goes right back to the old Simon when in essence he says to Peter, no, 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 no. You pray for me so that these bad things won't happen to me. You see what he's doing? He's still scripting this himself. He wants it Simon's way. He refuses the prescription that Peter said was available to him, and he writes his own. He wants his religion on his terms. Simon has not transformed yet. Why can't he just take Peter at his word and follow the prescription that was given to him? 
The only answer I have is that pride dies hard. Pride dies really hard. And there was plenty of pride in this guy. He was all about himself. He was all about amazing people and having them follow him and say how great he was. And that was just too much for him to release. Luke never tells us what finally happens to Simon. The last we hear about Simon are his words of response to Peter in response to the cure that Peter tells him is available to him. We don't know. We do know that if Simon would decide to follow that prescription, that there was a life of hope ahead for him and an eternity of hope as well. But we don't know if he responded or not. It does end well for the church, though. This is the redemptive part. An unhealthy attitude was called out. Peter made it abundantly clear how unacceptable this was in this church. So everybody knew that. And then we're told in the very last word that they kept on spreading the gospel in more and more villages in that area. And we can only imagine a third and a fourth and a fifth church being planted in this brand new movement that was going on. Peter's micro-sermon is every bit as epic as the very lengthy sermon that Stephen had preached earlier in the book. Because Peter's short sermon contains the same message of the gospel that every one of us is desperate for, the good news of what God has done for us through Jesus Christ that we could never do for ourselves. And whether we are a Christian or not, whether you identify as a Christian or not today, this mini sermon's for you because we all need to be in a cycle of repentance and asking for forgiveness because we're sinful people even if we're already Christians. It's part of the rhythm of this life as long as we're here in these bodies on this earth. If you don't identify as a Christian, this is, this is the invitation that God presents to you. Amen. Him to do the work in your heart. Peter's words to Simon are God's words to us today. Because our hearts can never be right before God without a relationship with Jesus. And many of us today can say we are in a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Celebrate, church, celebrate. Amen. Peter's prescription for Simon is the same for us. Repentance and prayer to God needs to be a part of our regular rhythm of life. And that forgiveness, this goal, this end game that Peter presents to Simon as also being pre pre presented to us. God stands ready to declare that he will not hold our sins against us. Forgiveness is not only possible, forgiveness is God's design for us. It's what he longs for, for each one of us. In four verses, Peter gives Simon, the crowd gathered around, and us today a roadmap to peace with God. Peter has to start off strong in this sermon with a hard message for Simon, but he ends with a very hopeful message for him and for anybody else who's willing to listen, who's willing to believe, who's willing to repent, and who's willing to receive God's forgiveness. It's a message for us today, church. Let's pray together. God, I just want to thank you for the truth 
that you present to us in your word. And I thank you for meeting us right at our points of need. I pray, Lord, for every one of us today, all my sisters and brothers that are gathered here, that, that you will allow us to look at our own hearts or to ask somebody else to reveal what's really going on in our hearts. What are our needs today? And to see what you offer for us. And I pray that we would be willing to receive that, that we would be willing to repent, even though it's very, very hard, that we would be willing to pray to you and seek that forgiveness that you offer to us on a daily basis. And that God, Metro Community Church would be filled with people who don't miss out on anything that you make available to us. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for your mercy. And even when you have to give us a hard word, Lord, we know that it's given in love. Pray, God, that this will be a year of us following you well. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I'm going to invite you to take out your communication card. And we're going to go through these next steps uh, in response to the word of God today whatever God has revealed to you. The first one says, I'm receiving God's gift of salvation today. If you don't identify yourself as a Christian today, then your, your next step is, is that step of entry into a relationship with God through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. Not through faith in your works, not through your faith in being good or accomplishing anything, no, but simply receiving the gift that God offers through his son, Jesus Christ. If you haven't done that, I would suggest that this is the day to do that. Uh, you can check that box off. Somebody will get in contact with you. You can also stop at the next table on your left on the way out. There's people who would love to talk with you. Come see me after the service. I'd love to talk with you. And we'll help you start on that, on that journey. Uh, the second one says that I will ask God to reveal to me where repentance and prayer need to happen in my life. This is sort of the King David thing. God, show me my blind spots. I, I'm, I'm asking you. I'm opening myself up to that. Uh, or ask, ask a trusted friend, uh, either way, but that you would indeed figure out what the condition of your heart is. What's your diagnosis today? What is it that God is offering to you? Uh, the third one seems unrelated, but it's not. Uh, I'll sign up for a small group MIT class or begin attending the Wednesday night or Friday morning prayer gathering. We really seriously want everybody at Metro to be involved in some kind of a smaller group where community can be built, where you can build relationships and have people you can ask to pray for you and you can pray for them and you can learn and grow together. Uh, a lot of that does not happen in the large gathering here. So there's a sign-up table out there for the, the um, small groups and also the MIT classes, the Wednesday and Friday uh, meetings happen every single week. You can always join us there at the church office for those. But please, please, please get involved in at least one group here at the church where you're with a smaller group of people. And then finally, sign me up for the Connection Dinner on February 10th at 4 p.m. If you've been here more than a couple of Sundays, uh, this is the next step for you to take because the Connections Dinner, there's no commitment whatsoever, but it's where you learn a whole lot more about Metro Community Church. Pastor Peter will show you, share the history, our, our present situation, and our vision for this church and this community. Uh, and it will, it will let you know, oh, is God showing you this is the place you should call your church home? So if you check that box, we'll put you on the list. 
We'll send you the details, make sure we have a good email for you. Uh, and then you can just drop this in the offering basket when it comes around and we will um, we'll get back in, in touch with you.